0: Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Litman. Four times a year, we return to our roots as former DOJers with an extensive look, well beyond the top lines you'll hear every day on the cable shows, at the goings-on inside the granite walls of the department from the people who know it best. Sussing out what's going on at the department is always in part a matter of reading tea leaves, particularly these days with the famously reticent attorney general. And we are your tea leave readers. There's quite a lot to try to suss out from the last three months, beginning with the big ticket items of the multiple investigations growing out of January 6th and the Mar-a-Lago document scandal, to the calls for DOJ to get involved in the Justice Clarence Thomas quagmire, to critical, if workaday, issues such as the state of the relationship between DOJ Brass and the FBI. To break down and assess the likely goings on at the department, we welcome our standing, happy band of DOJ stalwarts, with their antenna finally developed from years of work or coverage of the intricate world that lies behind the imposing iron doors on Pennsylvania Avenue between 9th and 10th Streets. And they are Katie Benner. Katie covers the DOJ for the New York Times. In 2018, she was part of a team that won a Pulitzer Prize for Public Service for reporting on workplace sexual harassment issues Previously, she worked at the San Francisco Bureau uh, covering a number of things and was a reporter for Bloomberg and Fortune magazine. She's on a book leave now. What are you toiling away on? You want to give us a preview?
1: Oh, you mean the albatross? What's the albatross? Yes, it's a a book.
0: (laughs) Remember, you have to bless it unawares. Yeah.
1: It's a book about race and education in America. So very lighthearted fair. Right. Yeah. That's a small topic.
2: <laughs> That's a small
1: topic.
3: Has your book already been banned in Florida? Maybe? Stop.
1: Okay. It's pre-banned. Pre-banned. <laughs> As a reporter, I'm not going to respond to that. I'm sorry. I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> you have no comment on that comment. All right. Speaking of which, Paul Fishman who currently heads Arnold and Porter's crisis management and strategic response team, also a member of the firm's white-collar defense, commercial litigation, securities enforcement, and appellate practices. All three of the former prosecutors here had have experience both at Maine Justice and in the field, which I think is really valuable, but nobody like Paul Fishman. He's done it all at DOJ from line prosecutor, first assistant in New Jersey, very senior official at Maine Justice, I would Hide when I saw him walking down the halls, and the U.S. Attorney for the District of New Jersey, serving from 2009 to 2017. Thanks so much for joining, Paul Fishman.
3: Happy to do it, Harry, and you're not the only person who hid from me, either at Maine Justice or in other places. (laughs) Okay. And Andrew Weissman, currently a professor
0: of practice with the Center on the Administration of Criminal Law at NYU Law School. Like Paul, it's got a rich history and varied background at DOJ as a line prosecutor, supervisor, and senior official. As most everyone knows, he served as lead prosecutor in Robert Mueller's special counsel's office, and his book on the experience entitled, Where Law Ends? Inside the Mueller Investigation was the must-read account of that episode. Chief of the Criminal Fraud Section in DOJ from 2015 to 2019. And before that, a storied line prosecutor in the Eastern District of New York, I can say. I haven't heard the stories before I met him. Along with former acting AAG for National Security, Mary McCord, he recently has launched an excellent podcast entitled Prosecuting Donald Trump that uh, looks like it's going to be going on for a little while. (laughs) Anyway, um, Andrew Weissman, thanks so much for joining.
1: Andrew, you have so much job security in your podcast. <laughs>
2: exactly. Um, yeah, it's nice to be here at the competition, Harry.
0: <laughs> oh, well, I'm flattered. How Do you guys yet have um, mugs and banners and stuff like that? You mean merch. Merch, merch. merch.
2: I want to have us to have T-shirts. First of all, it could go with my Room Raider T-shirt. Right. Which is the thing I'm most proud of in my career. But I, I want to have one that says prosecuting Donald Trump. Because... Like, that, I think, would be a good merch.
0: It's a can't-miss idea, I gotta say. I think we can leave that behind, however. So look, actually, your podcast, sometimes this podcast, others are very valuable in kind of what's going on at DOJ. Rather than doing another tour of the Jack Smith investigations and some other important cases, I'd like us to profit from everyone's expertise and experience to try to peer into the department for a more overall sense of how things are going. But let's start with Smith from an on-the-ground vantage point. You know, we know he's cleaved off as he needs to be in his office space, generally working independently. But let's say he concludes that he wants to recommend an indictment of one of the main investigations he's pursuing What precisely is the process he follows there and what lies between that decision and a request to a grand jury?
2: This is a really interesting area because this is not something that the special counsel regulations actually go into the nitty gritty of how much reporting is going to be done by the special counsel to the deputy attorney general or the attorney general. So, it's unclear, first of all, how much reporting has been going on, uh, whether it's oral or in writing. And it's unclear what kind of parameters have been worked out with respect to any potential charges that would be brought. For instance, I know what we did with Special Counsel Mueller. I've heard that John Durham, who's sort of an Erzot's special counsel, because technically he's not because he wasn't outside the department when he was appointed. So he doesn't actually fit the rules. But I've heard he sort of has a talk to the hand sort of model. And on the other hand, the attorney general does have the right to overrule a decision to prosecute. So it's not technically a recommendation. It's a decision and then the attorney general if he thinks it's essentially there's wording this is in the special counsel rules if he the special counsel thinks it's so out of the mainstream and unwarranted then the attorney general obviously can reverse it and then that ultimately does get reported to Congress. So All of that means that a decision by a special counsel to indict has to, in some way and manner, be given to the attorney general. You would think also because the attorney general has to make a decision about it being so far out of the mainstream or not, that there would need to be some factual and legal analysis that goes with that so that the attorney general could make their own decision and wouldn't just have to be recreating the wheel As to how to do it. Now, with respect to special counsel Mueller, we brought a lot of indictments against people who were not, so to speak, immunized by the fact that they were the sitting current president. Internally, because Robert Mueller is such a loosey goosey guy, he insisted on, to be serious, we had really detailed PROS memos, probably more detailed and more thorough than even Bob Mueller would have wanted, because I think we all felt like both for posterity, we wanted to make sure that we had a complete record of what our thinking was and why we wanted to go forward, because we knew at the time that there was going to be an investigation of the investigators. And if left to the MAGA Republicans, a prosecution of the prosecutors. And we also didn't want Special Counsel Mueller, like your your nightmare was that You would have presented a case to him. He would have said go forward and you hadn't flagged every issue for him to think about as to what could go right or wrong in the case.
0: That's just the kind of prosecutor he is.
2: Totally meticulous. And, you know, you present something to him and, like, the issue that you're most worried about that is on page, like, 67, (laughs) you walk into the meeting and the first thing he says is, on page 67, uh, you're just like, (laughs) are you kidding me? Like a dog with a bone. One final piece is that in our situation, there was complete reporting to the DAG. Because, remember, for most of our... Lifetime, the DAG was the acting
3: attorney general. You know, look, in reality, whatever the special counsel regulations say, it sort of depends on what Smith might recommend. So if Smith were to conclude, for example, that there were two or three people at Mar-a-Lago who decided intentionally not to produce classified records to the department but those people were not the former president. I think the level of review and the level of interaction between Smith and the leadership of the department necessarily has to be less. If you think about what matters and how people think about stuff, I'm not, and I'm not saying that's what the regulations say, but I think you have, you know, Smith, I think, probably has less need to communicate directly with the attorney general or the deputy attorney general about what he's going to do or what he might do with respect to lower-level people. That's just the way it works. At the same time, I can't imagine that anybody would bring any case under these circumstances without a real, you know, we call it a a, a prosecution memo that lays out the evidence, the facts, the theories of the prosecution, the statutes, the elements, potential defenses, and all those sorts of things because you're going to want to have a really good record of that. The question I think you're ultimately asking, Hal, Is if Jack Smith decides that he doesn't have enough evidence or for some other reason should not pursue a prosecution of Donald Trump, is he going to announce that decision before he talks to the attorney general of the United States? The answer has got
1: to be no. In the regulations, it says that he is to submit his report to the attorney general.
3: But that's different than an indictment, Katie.
1: No, I'm saying he's going to submit his decision to the attorney general. I guess he could first go on CNN and announce it.
3: That's what Jim Comey sort
1: of did, (laughs) right? I don't think we're going to see another Comey, hopefully. But, you know, it just seems like it would be a little bit beyond the pale to use the regulations as they're written to find the loopholes to go do something that would be outrageous. It doesn't seem like that's the kind of person Jack Smith is. But if you're thinking that that's a possibility, I guess.
0: Let's say, for example, he has decided subjectively to indict. It's pretty interesting to know that the review that's prescribed in the guidelines is not a new de novo look, as it were, but rather a sort of narrow channel for saying no.
3: Now that's sort of the point, right? That's that's sort of the point. The reason you have somebody like this is because there's the, an actual or potential conflict of the leadership of the department. And so the, the burden to supersede the judgment of that special counsel should be higher, right? Otherwise, you might as well just have anybody else do the work.
0: Let me follow up on one thing you said, Paul. What's your horse sense, if any, of how frequently Smith or his team are in touch with Monaco or someone in the deputy or AG's office. In other words, on intermediate procedural steps or who we put in the grand jury now, or do we offer immunity? Important issues, but far from final ones.
3: If I remember correctly, there are two provisions in the regulation that actually deal with this question. One is that the special counsel is supposed to have effectively the same authorities the United States, that a United States attorney would have conducting a, a high-profile investigation. So if you look at the Department of Justice manual, for example, a United States attorney's office, even with approval of the United States attorney, can't get a wiretap approved without going to to the Department of Justice and the people who are involved in that process. You can't get immunity for a witness without doing all that.
0: Special things for attorneys, which matters here.
3: Yes, yeah, so subpoenaing attorney, you know, there are a variety, of, you can't indict a tax case, you can't indict a RICO case, all sorts of things without at least consultation and sometimes approval of relevant career lawyers in Maine Justice, and that's to make sure that there's a consistency among the way those particular tools are employed and, and decisions are reached. And there is that requirement in there, but. There's also, I'm sure, some play in the joints, and so there, there has to be interaction of, of that note. There's a, there's a second provision, and again, I don't remember where in the regulation it is, but there's been a practice in the department for decades of something called urgent reports, and urgent reports are a system through which people who are working somewhere in the department, the U.S. attorneys in office in Oklahoma or in Alaska or Florida, who was about to. In- undertake some activity that might get some attention from somebody of some consequence. It might be something that people notice. And under those circumstances, the United States Attorney's Office or a component of the department in Washington is supposed to alert the leadership so people aren't blindsided, right? And it's not necessarily about getting approval, although sometimes that might follow. But there is a provision in the regulation that the special counsel is supposed to notify the attorney general of the kinds of things that would ordinarily make its way into urgent reports. Now, I will tell you, having been on both sides of those urgent reports, having sent them from the field and having read them when they came in when I was in the deputy attorney general's office, there is a manifest inconsistency in the standard about by, by which people observe that requirement. Right. There were certain U.S. attorney's offices, and I won't name them, although one of them might rhyme with Southern District of New York, in which urgent reports didn't come quite as often as they would from other districts. And part of the reason they didn't is because people were worried that if they sent them, that they would be overly broadcast through the building and too many people would know about stuff. But the truth is no responsible person employing the kinds of tools that prosecutors and agents get to use all the time should use them in a situation that's going to get high profile attention and have real consequences for the country or something else without telling your boss. And I realize that in these circumstances, the attorney general or the deputy attorney general may be Jack Smith's boss only in certain ways, but the idea that the attorney general or deputy attorney general would read about this stuff in the newspaper, that strikes me. No disrespect, Katie Benner, about you and your sources. Strikes me as a terrible thing to happen under these circumstances.
1: We've never said that he's not telling them anything. What we've said and what's in the regulations is that if Merrick Garland wants to tell him he cannot do something, he has to also notify Congress that he's told him he's not going to let him do it. So we've never said that Jack Smith is not communicating with higher up officials. We've never said that Jack Smith is not consulting on things he needs to consult on wiretaps, bringing a RICO case, bringing a tax case. All we've said though is that if he says to Merrick Garland, I want to do A, and Garland says, no. We will know that because Garland, by the regulations, must tell Congress. It says that if he concludes that a proposed action by a special counsel should not be pursued, the attorney general shall notify
3: Congress as specified in 609A3. So that is something that has to happen. Well, that's true. But well, first of all, two things. One is, Katie, I didn't mean to suggest anything about your reporting that was bad. I was suggesting that maybe your sources would get stuff to you more urgently then somebody might get it to the attorney general. I was suggesting that. No,
1: I don't think so. I don't think so. <laughs> I, we wish. She wishes. Actually, for... let's just take pause. I would desperately love that. So if anybody's listening
3: and wants to do that. If anyone is out there who would like to call in, <laughs> Please do. Exactly. But the attorney general doesn't have to make that notification until the special counsel's investigation is over. Right. Right? So if the special counsel says to Merrick Garland today, I want to indict Rudy Giuliani. And if Merrick Garland says no... Uh, or the other way around. He says, I'm not going to indict Rudy Giuliani. And Marek Garland says, No, no, I've looked at the evidence and you have to do it. He's not going to tell Congress that until the investigation's completely over. So we might not get that information for quite some time, given the scope of the investigation and the number of people he's taken a look at.
1: I think that given Garland's history, his couple of years as attorney general, I don't think he's ever said no to a career prosecutor. He's not said no to career prosecutors who wanted to continue to defend Donald Trump in the E. Jean Carroll case. He's not said no to career prosecutors who wanted to have the U.S. government stand in for other Trump officials. He's not said no to prosecutors who've done things that are wildly unpopular with the Biden administration and with Democrats. And he's not said no to prosecutors who wanted to do things that made, you know, a lot of liberals cheer. For instance, he didn't say no to the
2: Sussman indictment, um which is you know very a very, very weak case by a special counsel, which would be a classic example of where you might look at it and say, Is this something that really meets the special counsel rules?
0: I want to keep plumbing the depths a little here, but just very quickly. Everyone agrees he ain't gonna say no here, right? Emphatically, right?
3: Three votes. That's right. That seems right.
0: Whatever
1: Smith recommends, it's very difficult for me to see Garland saying no in this instance when he said yes in literally every other instance, no matter the strength of the case. And also keep in mind that these rules are written, I mean, like Neil Cattiel, he wrote them. He would love to come on and talk about this. As he'll tell you. (laughs) Hello. (laughs) These rules were created because Clinton officials were so horrified by what happened with the special prosecutor's investigation in that case that they created this sort of like weird hybrid, you're independent, but you're not. And we can have an attorney general crush you because of what happened with Star. And so this whole provision is simply for something that's beyond the pale. But otherwise, it's supposed to be somewhat like an independent investigation. And again, to Andrew's point, if you're going to say no to a case, there have been cases that have come up that you could, you could make the argument weren't strong it's hard for me to see garland making an exception to his pattern of behavior with jack smith
2: yeah
0: yeah we're in violent agreement on on that
2: (laughs) we're in violent agreement because i think all of us are but the bottom line after all of this sturm and drang is we're all sitting there going merrick garland ain't gonna overrule the decision that is made by jack smith here
0: Right. I do want to point out, it's a little weird, though, the way we're talking about, because I do think he's trying to stay kind of hands off. And, you know, this is a very experienced attorney general who you might think would be weighing in on particular points. It's remarkable the amount of real authority for important issues in the country, effective authority that Jack Smith, who no one had ever heard of before six months ago or whatever, effectively has.
1: And like Paul would know this better than anyone, but if you even look at the things for which a U.S. attorney would need to consult main justice, they're generally consulting the DAG's office. They're generally consulting, you know, the equivalent of Marshall Miller. Well, just to be clear, to
2: to Paul's point, all of those internal rules about getting permission to do something, I've never complied with them more than when I was working for special counsel Mueller. Because that is in the special counsel regulations. And that is something that special counsel Mueller could have been fired for if he didn't. So every single step that you have to take things that let's just say some U.S. attorney's offices are a little less careful than others. And this is one where every single thing was done. And, And one of the ways the department insulated us from all these people in the department, in those positions, knowing what we were doing is that one person would be designated. So there was somebody at the Office of International Affairs, there was one person designated within attorney approvals to subpoena attorneys. And that person did not for that purpose report to their normal supervisor. So that there wasn't sort of this dissemination of everything we were doing, but it allowed us to get all of the approvals we needed to do. But for instance, we brought tax charges. Just to be clear, we had to get tax approval to bring tax charges.
0: As a U.S. attorney would. Yeah,
2: Exactly. We wanted to bring... FARA charges. We had to get the approval of the National Security Division. So in that sense, this was not a unilateral decision by the special counsel where we were operating in an area where any U.S. attorney would have to have gotten internal approvals.
0: Okay, last process question, and this isn't in the letter of the regs, either just do you have an intuition. The decision time comes for Garland to overrule or not Who's in the room? Is Smith himself in the room? Presumably Lisa Monaco. Who's in the in the room as the decisions being actually talked through?
3: I would think that Lisa Monaco is definitely in the room. Jack Smith is definitely in the room. I can imagine the Attorney General talking after the meeting to the Deputy Attorney General or to whomever in his or her inner circle are the people to whom they normally turn on issues that are high high profile complicated issues that require great deliberation and great thought and great common sense. I would expect that Marshall Miller, who's the, we all know, the Paydag, the principal associate deputy attorney general, which makes him the, the highest ranking person on Lisa Monaco's staff would be in the room. It's possible that Kenneth Polite, the head of the criminal division, could be in the room to give some degree of standardization for things that they've been thinking about in the criminal division. I, I don't really know the people to whom Merrick Garland would turn under those circumstances, but my guess is the circle would be relatively small, and it would be people whose judgment he really trusts.
1: I mean, Andrew, in the Mueller case, when you know the members of the team working on the Trump piece went and had those final meetings with, I mean, okay, we'll take the Matt Whitaker era out; that was a little bit unusual because he had a, like a four people standing in for Matt Whitaker. But when it was Barr, it was. Bill Barr was his chief of staff. It was Ed O'Callaghan and Rod Rosenstein. And that was the group, plus Aaron Zebley and Mueller. And who was whom I was in quarrels? So that was the group then. So wouldn't it be a similar, I mean, why wouldn't it be a similar group?
2: Well, Barr's a really different attorney general. And yeah, I don't think that the general view is that Barr didn't really see the need for a DAG.
1: I'm just saying that Rod and Ed were in the meeting. You know, The DAG and the pay DAG were in the meeting when the decisions were made.
2: I actually think most people will want to not be in the room, but certain people are going to be required to be there.
3: I think Rod didn't want to be in the room and he was required to be there. (laughs) I think it also depends a little bit on who the yaysayers and naysayers are Mm -hmm. in a particular decision. There were lots of cases that, you know, not over the years that I've been involved in, I was involved in law enforcement when I was in the DAG's office, when I was in the U.S. Attorney's office, in which they give the agents working on a case and the prosecutors working on a case didn't necessarily have the same... View about the strength of the evidence or the number of people who should be charged or what the scope of the charges should be and that sort of thing. And under those circumstances, often when there was a conversation about what to do, the supervisors would be in the room. And so, for example, there were cases in which I met not alone, but often with our staff, with the special agent in charge of the New Jersey FBI to talk about an issue in which there was some disagreement about an ultimate decision. And I, I wouldn't expect that if, for example, there's a divergence of views in a case like this between the seat and the supervisors at the FBI and the assistant U.S. Attorney on the, side, the people on Jack Smith's yeah. staff or Jack Smith himself about how to proceed, I think Chris Ray would probably be in the room.
0: Interesting. I mean, we did hear about some discord at the level of the, the service of the search warrant with the Bureau. That goes actually just where I was hoping to. We'll leave Smith alone for a second, but just in talking about Smith... The Bureau's come up a few times, Comey and Sessions. But, you know, it's a perennial source of drama, the relationship with the FBI. And, you know, last administration, the DAG recommended the sacking of the head of the FBI. Anyone have a sense of how the relationship is at this point?
1: The people I've spoken with have just noted that in this instance, it's an unusual turn that the FBI would be more cautious and the prosecutors be less so. And I think they chalk it up to a lot Mm -hmm. of things, but when it's sort of this PTSD hangover of the Trump era, where the FBI was completely attacked, where their work on Crossfire Hurricane was ripped apart, where they were made examples of and called enemies of the state. And I think that people inside the department feel that has had some impact on how the FBI is conducting itself in a similarly politically sensitive matter. I'm not saying this is true of the entire Bureau. The Bureau does a lot of things. They do white-collar investigations. They're looking at domestic extremism out in you know the Mountain West, et cetera. But just in this matter, it was something that was noted.
2: I do think that the FBI is going to be in the room, but I think there are a whole variety of reasons, including to make sure that they're locked in on their position So, that there isn't going to be backsliding afterwards. Because I think with Lisa Monica in particular, you have people who are very savvy about what can happen outside of the room. Chris Ray obviously has a lot to deal with in terms of managing the FBI in the sort of post Trump era. So, I think it's going to be really important that he's in the room and voicing his opinion clearly as to what the FBI's recommendation is. It's a little bit unusual because if, if there's a FBI team on the special counsel, there will be that person from the FBI as well. So you'll sort of have two pieces to it in the same way that we had a head FBI agent, but we also, you know, for at least some period of time had Andy McCabe as the acting who is representing you know, what I'll call big FBI.
0: There's a little FBI. When I became U.S. attorney, a good friend of mine who was in Katie's position said to me, you know, I can't tell you anything about running an office, but I can tell you this. If you're getting fucked in the press, it's the FBI. (laughs) What do you think, Harry, what do you think he meant by that? (laughs) I think they tend to be press savvy as well. Well, you can ask Katie about it. Look, they are uniquely sophisticated publicly, uh, you know, aware of press and stuff, law enforcement agency. I think we'll we'd have three votes for that here too. But let me ask about Chris Ray whom you mentioned who's taking a fair bit of heat including some of the bureau's work or lack thereof or, or around the sixth do you have a sense that he's in on solid ground and is there a real tension between the department and the bureau institutionally now
2: I'll make two points on that one it's an unusual situation because Lisa Monaco knows the bureau equally well as Chris Ray if not better because of the number of years that she worked at the Bureau. So the, her ability to have real insight into how well he is doing his job is very unusual to have. She has that experience both on the criminal and the national security side, which is one thing that makes her pretty unique uh, in terms of somebody who's who's held the DAG position in terms of the depth of that experience, including within the FBI. And the second, which is somewhat Contrary to that point, which is just as a matter of reality, Chris Ray isn't going anywhere. They're not going to get rid of him. So he's going to leave what he wants to leave. I just don't think that it, they're going to use any political capital whatsoever, even if, and that's a big if, they did think that his performance was deficient.
0: Katie, you agree?
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. Andrew, do you think there's ever a world in which Lisa runs the FBI?
2: Not at this point. I mean, I mean, is there a world where, if Chris Rave leaves voluntarily, purely voluntarily, where she might want to move over, yeah, that's certainly a possibility, but I just think that that she's not going to be doing anything behind the scenes to sort of angle for that job. I mean, first of all, she's the dag it's not exactly <laughs> it's not exactly a consolation prize.
1: It's a pretty good
3: job, I hear, yeah, <laughs> pretty good,
2: yeah, right, and yeah. she's so invaluable too.
3: <laughs> it may be the hardest job in the department. It's not a consolation prize, but yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, being FBI director can be really hard if you're doing it well.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's just a little cone that Andrew has put out for us to all ponder. But I think that that's right. There's a probably a very good working relationship between the FBI and the DAG's office because of how well Lisa understands it. And because like Ray, he's a person who did very well in the world of white collar law. He seems like a very self-confident guy.
3: He's a button down guy, right? He's, he's buttoned
1: a, down. Yeah. He just wants to do his job. He doesn't seem easily threatened. He seems happy in the seat.
3: Keep in mind, I mean, he's got, it's not just that, I mean, he's got lots of experience, not just in white collar, but in being on both sides of Pennsylvania Avenue. He was the head of the criminal division in the Department of Justice. He was in the DAG's office. He was an assistant U.S. attorney in, in Atlanta, where he 2nd seated a case tried by Sally Yates, right? right? Their friends. They were at the same law firm. So he has a lot of cred and a lot of friends on both sides of the aisle, which in some ways made him, I think, a surprising choice by Trump because he was sort of much more law enforcement-y. <laughs> in a lot of ways. And you thought Trump might've gone after Comey. And I mean, look, you can't run the FBI and not run into your share of stuff that, you know, makes the agency look bad. It's just a complicated, hard agency with enormous challenges, lots of interesting and sometimes difficult personalities and, and a mission that is extraordinarily complicated and hard.
1: And broad.
3: And so if you're, they have the FBI, no matter how good you are, you're going to run into shit, right? And yes. and people are going to not be thrilled with every decision you make inside your agency, outside your agency, in the White House, in the Department of Justice, at the Defense Department, wherever you go. Mm-hmm. And I think, all things considered, given the the unbelievable of events of the six years, almost six years now of Chris's tenure, he's actually come through that all pretty well. I think in Washington,
1: it is amazing. Yes, especially given some of the hype profile, you know, cock ups at the FBI, he's managed to come through them with vows to improve the bureau that people have generally believed are sincere and move this institution along and not get caught up in them. So there was like the FBI issues around the gymnasts in Michigan that was like absolutely horrifying. There were FBI issues around investigations into Asian American, Asian Chinese professors some of those cases where I think we can say really bad, you know, there are, of course, ongoing echoes around by Hurricane and around the investigation there and the multiple ongoing never ending investigations there. But he's kind of just he keeps moving the institution along. You know, he's done a good job.
0: He also seems to be getting increasing confidence of the rank and file, which was a mm-hmm. little bit of, you know, of a challenge coming in. That's not
2: what I'm hearing. I just want to be a naysayer in
0: this. Please? Yeah, that's what this episode's about.
2: I think that there are significant things that he has not done well. I I do not think that within the rank and file, which, by the way, I don't think that's necessarily the right barometer for whether the person's doing a good job or not.
1: Going back to Harry's earlier point
0: about the press. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) but it was an obvious problem coming in. Right. Yeah.
2: I mean, Jim Comey was extremely popular within the Bureau, and I thought he made some really horrendous decisions. But I don't think that. Chris is particularly the people within the rank and file, at least from what I've heard, or th- that I don't know that he's that popular, but getting to something more substantive. I mean, I think his handling of all of January 6th was beyond the pale. It was so anti-Mueller in the way that you were supposed to react to that situation. I thought there was a huge FBI failure. I mean, I, by the way, they're not the only agency Those failures happen. I mean, there's no question that people can make mistakes. I don't think he handled the fact of the mistake well. I don't think his testimony before Congress was particularly accepting of the mistakes that were made. And I don't think he's done what you're supposed to do in terms of having an internal review where you figure out and you audit what happened and you figure out how to deal with that going forward. That's sort of a typical Mueller not to sound like, you know, a total groupie, but that's like what's beaten into you in terms of how you deal with those issues. And I could go on and on, but I mean, Just Security has written a lot about his specific testimony, what the specific rules are that contradict what he had said and testified to. As Asha has written a lot about the sort of lack of an internal review. That's not to say that he hasn't done lots of other good things. Just to be fair, I'm not saying like he's consistently bad, but I do think, you know, one of the things that's hard about these big positions is that you do get defined by certain moments and it's important. That's why you're paid the big bucks, so to speak, is that you you are judged by how you handle these kinds of things. And I I think it, having that sense of contrition, and bringing the agency along with what could have been done better was really necessary.
0: Part of it does remain a mystery. And I think that is the sort of main black eye I was referring to. But, you know, that's already been over a year, though it's an ongoing thing in his office. So my th- sense was, and this could be wrong just on the facts, that, you know, it wasn't from the FBI culture, and he's at least been steady.
1: I mean, it's amazing. It's almost like he's a little bit Teflon.
0: All right. It is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages.
4: Thanks, Harry. Today's spirited debate centers around a recipe for a timeless cocktail from the 1800s, the old-fashioned, where the question still stands whether to use rye whiskey or bourbon. The original recipe calls for bourbon, so we've already scored one point for bourbon there. As for the specific brand, the rule of thumb is if you wouldn't sip it by itself, it has no home in the glass of your old-fashioned. In our other hand, we've got rye whiskey, which introduces a peppery bite that's a little bit spicier and less sweet than bourbon. Again, if we take a note from history, we learn that the original recipe called for sugar. It was actually first defined in print as spirit, bitters, sugar, and water. So you could definitely supplement the less sweet rye option and use simple syrup instead of a muddled sugar cube for a balanced twist. The jury's still out when it comes to a verdict in the rye versus bourbon debate, but we do know this. Whichever one you go with, you'll want something at least 90 proof or higher so your drink stands up to dilution from the melting ice. From all of us here at Total Wine & More, cheers to bourbon and rye.
0: Thanks to our friends at Total Wine & More for today's A Spirited Debate.
4: All right, let's move to someone who
0: seems less and less Teflon uh, these days. And is there any role for DOJ to play? That would be Justice Clarence Thomas. So, you know, a lot of this stuff to date has involved Ginny, has been murky, etc. But these last round of revelations, I, I don't think anybody defends. But there's a lot of agitation for the department to somehow get involved. They've gotten letters from Congress, from White House and Johnson, from other entities. Anything going to possibly happen here? Anything should possibly happen here? What would it even be if they were going to muck around in this pond?
1: I mean, I think Paul and Andrew have interesting ideas about what should happen. Yeah.
3: I'll go first. There are lots of federal public officials, lots and lots, who file financial disclosure forms. They are available to the public, of course, in many circumstances. And I certainly filed one for the seven or eight years I was U.S. attorney, and I, I may have even followed them when I was the first assistant back in the 1990s. Members of Congress and cabinet officers and subcabinet officers and judges. And if it weren't Clarence Thomas, if it wasn't a member of the Supreme Court, I don't even know if we'd be having this conversation, right? If this sort of information came across the desk and people in the public integrity section of the criminal division in Washington, there would likely be at least a look by the department into... What happened? Right, a file would be opened. A file might be opened. And it's what a, would the file say on it? By the way, it's a false statement. It's a thousand. And, it's, I mean, there may be more specific statutes, but it's a yeah. thousand and one. The basic okay. statute that we've been talking about now on every Talking Feds podcast I've been on since the pilot in like nineteen forty-seven. <laughs> <laughs> and you went
0: on to greatness, like all of us.
3: Exactly. And look, you know, the issue is: Did you make a false statement? Within the jurisdiction of a federal agency, that was material. It's what Bob Menendez basically got indicted for back in you know two thousand fifteen or sixteen by the Public Integrity Section. Much less, right? What was? Do you remember the Menendez charge? Yeah, it was like a it was like a five thousand dollar trip with his girlfriend to Paris, right? And and there was a lot of you know there was a lot of debate about whether that was a good case or a bad case or a hard case or an easy case. But somebody took a look because the question was in part. Was there some sort of quid pro quo on the other side of the Menendez stuff? Because the guy who gave him the gift, Dr. Melgan, also had a number of interests with the federal government that looked like they might have some tie to what Menendez had done. Okay, fine. You know, I don't really know whether Crow, the guy who's been giving them all this largesse over the last X number of years, has the kinds of requisite interests you would want to have for the federal government to get to, to the quid pro quo level or to the implication or the inference of a quid pro quo. But the idea that somebody left off their disclosure form, you know, a five hundred thousand dollar gift, that's a lot.
0: Twice his annual salary. Paul, you haven't done that?
3: (laughs) That's how much Harry I get from Harry to be on the podcast. Are
0: you
2: (laughs) kidding? Are you kidding me? I need to up my fee.
3: We're just good friends. It's just personal Personal
2: hospitality. Personal hospitality.
3: I throw in the towels. Exactly. And then, look, coming back to the idea, look, you know, if, if they were actually friends, we all go to people's houses for dinner, right? And sometimes people go to houses for dinner of people who actually have something to do with their jobs. I mean, prosecutors eat with defense lawyers, who, you know, defense lawyers eat with prosecutors, and maybe it's a really nice dinner and it's a filet mignon. Still, that's not going to excite people. This is different. Getting on a private plane, somebody else's private plane to go somewhere is a very different kind of look. And leaving aside the question about whether the Supreme Court should have an ethics code that prohibits something like that, you know, the fact is, this is the kind of thing that gets left off of a financial disclosure, and the Department of Justice does take a look at this kind of stuff for everybody else. And who makes the call? Well, so here, but here's an interesting question, right? So so let's dive back into where we started this dialogue an hour ago, which is the Department of Justice has an enormous number of cases in front of Clarence Thomas. And so I don't actually know whether this might be another situation. Andrew may have thought about this more than I have, or Katie, having looked at the regs, whether this would be a conflict of interest of some kind for the department. Now, the department has prosecuted judges before, and so it's not out of bounds for them to do that. But this is the court of last resort for the Department of Justice's most important cases in many instances. And so it does create an issue about whether it's appropriate for the attorney general to investigate one of the nine people who hears the solicitor general's appeals, or whether you'd have to go again outside the department for that, or so or to somebody special inside the department.
0: Katie was saying that, Andrew, you had some views about what should happen here.
3: Because I'm
1: just a total killjoy.
2: Well, I thought just reality. I mean, I agree with every single thing Paul said, but I don't think anything's going to be done within mm-hmm. the department. And just to be clear, I do think that Merrick and Lisa have both... Taken bold steps when necessary. So, I mean, it's not that I don't think that they have the will at times to do what's necessary. I mean, after all, they did approve the search in Mar a Lago. They knew that they would be criticized for it, they knew they'd be in the center of a firestorm. And I think they both, I mean, I'm just reading from the outside that they thought that national security of the United States required it. But I don't think that that will be the view here.
1: And even if they did, The only way to remove a Supreme Court justice is through impeachment, which is not going to happen. And so they would be moving toward a possible indictment of somebody over a thousand and one that may or may not ever materialize
2: for what? Well, just to be clear, I actually think that's sort of the wrong analysis, because if you thought the proof was overwhelming and it was a serious offense, you you might just say, bring the case regardless of what's going to happen to him on the bench.
1: I don't know that a thousand and one case without a clear regulation that you violate because the Supreme Court doesn't have a clear regulation here, even though it might seem grotesque to the average person and it might seem totally excessive and totally ridiculous, et cetera, et cetera. I'm just saying I don't even think this is a strong case. So you're going to bring like a kind of weak case. Oh,
2: separate issue. I'm just saying that the the issue of whether he would be removed or not, I think, would be a very, very separate thing because that's sure. not what the goal Right.
1: I hear that. But I mean, like, but to bring a case that's not that strong.
3: But if you got to the place where if impeachment was the only option to get rid of somebody, you couldn't prosecute any federal judges. Right. Because the only way to get rid of any federal judge who has life tenure under the Constitution is an impeachment.
1: I was just throwing in the thing about impeachment, because it seems to me when I'm watching like too much liberal television, that the whole point of prosecuting people is to get rid of them. Trump, et cetera. And I'm like, okay, well, if that's what you want to do, well, then you should impeach. But if what you want to do is make a statement about what happened, I don't know that a prosecution is the best way to make this statement. Because again, especially given the Supreme Court's rules, ethics rules for the amount of time, you know, during the, during the period which he was taking these extraordinary trips is fuzzy enough. And Justice Roberts does not seem like he's inclined to discipline anybody, I don't really see what bringing a weak case would get
3: anyone.
0: And I don't think Roberts has the power. There's a lot of people saying, oh, it shows he's weak, but I don't think there's anything he could do.
3: Let me say one quick thing, which is I think the for those of people who are listening and for those of us who are a little geekier, what Katie's basically raising is a materiality question. If he lied on his form, if he was supposed to report it and didn't report it, if that's even the case, right? The argument you're making, Katie, is that it's not material because there's no federal agency to whom this made a difference, right? And that may be right. So it is interesting that we have this standard for these forms and the forms for the Supreme Court really mean effectively nothing.
0: I hear three thumbs up for it's a more serious conduct than things that have been prosecuted, but nothing's gonna happen here as a practical matter, right?
1: I mean, I kind of would support the idea of bringing Clarence Thomas before the People's Court though. (laughs) 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 I would love to see that episode. (laughs) So once again, we're in violent agreement. (laughs) <laughs> this is
2: like it takes us a while because we're wordy.
0: It's an unusual episode. Rats, right, so we're gonna so we'll prepare more next time and really find some uh, divisions and stress lines.
1: Can I point out one thing? I think in our last episode where we didn't agree was Jack Smith's timeline, because I'd written a story saying that people were hopeful that he would prosecute as soon as this summer. I'm just saying, it's April's almost gone, guys. He's got four weeks. And then he hits my deadline.
3: <laughs> so the question, Katie, when you say that, though, is prosecute whom for what, right? That it sort of depends who's the potential target and what the charge is, right? The classified document stuff is not so complicated. The January 6th stuff is enormously more complicated, right? Exactly.
1: So I think that the story said that they were hopeful that the decision would be made on the documents case by the summer basically, June. And January 6th is interesting. I'm glad you brought that up because who is to say that Trump would be the right person for Jack Smith to initially prosecute out of that? Why wouldn't it be John Eastman first? Or somebody else?
0: In general, this whole issue of whom else, like what, maybe if Meadows takes the fifth, what happens? You know, do they give immunity? When we're talking about the timeline, that I think is the most pressing practical question.
1: Andrew's shaking his head. See, we just found a point of disagreement. Andrew, why don't you think he would prosecute Eastman before Trump?
2: So an unusual aspect of Jack Smith's investigation is that we haven't seen these sort of interim prosecutions that usually signal progress and flipping people and pressuring people. That's very unusual. It's also, however, very unusual because Jack Smith, for various reasons, is kind of jammed up as a time matter, as a practical matter. And so... I think is pure speculation, but maybe educated speculation that I think that he is keeping his eye completely on Donald Trump and whether that case can be made. That doesn't mean that when he indicts Donald Trump, that he's not going to indict other people, but I don't think he's going to delay or take interim steps. I think it's going to be entirely focused given the time frame that he may feel that's where he's aiming. I also think in some ways the Trump case may be easier than the Eastman case. I'm not saying he, that Eastman won't get indicted, but I'm not sure I'd say that's the low-hanging fruit. I think you know Mar-a-Lago is the low-hanging fruit. That's just, just such a strong case. And and the obstruction may be a complete rock crusher in that case. I'd be surprised if we're going to see that kind of iterative approach given where we are. If he had been appointed two years ago, I think I'd have a very different view.
0: I'm going to call an audible on our Talking Five and ask, instead of what we had, both you, Katie, and you, Paul, and me, to give your quick thoughts to exactly that point is the first indictment out of Jack Smith's office to include Donald Trump.
3: I think Andrew's right. It's the kind of thing that's designed traditionally to go from the bottom-up or from the outside in the way we traditionally investigate and try to flip people against people higher up. I think Andrew's entirely right. I don't think Jack Smith has the kind of time. I don't think it's impossible that he would indict somebody before Trump if he decides to indict Trump also in a standalone case or in a standalone case in which he wouldn't necessarily for need leverage. that result. No, not necessarily for leverage, just because it's a case that should be brought. Right. And so we don't we don't know that. But I do agree with Andrew. He can't wait to start indicting people until April of 2024. Right. That's a problem, I think. And he's got to go faster than that. Um, Having said that, you know, Boris Epstein was in this week. And so I don't think he's standing around doing nothing, That Jack Smith. And he's only been there for six months, eight months. I mean, it's really sort of a remarkable thing.
0: Yeah. And Epstein, it was interesting that it was an interview first, not a he didn't haul him into the grand jury.
1: You kind of want to know what you're going to get first, though. So,
0: yeah,
3: often yeah. better for the witness because then his lawyer gets to be in the room. Right. The lawyer doesn't get to be in the room in the grand jury. So sometimes people do like that better.
1: Yeah. And again, I think Smith has a reputation for really wanting to know what people are going to say before he decides to put them in front of a grand jury. So it's a smart caution. Yeah. I mean, I think that there would be an indictment If the questions. Would a Trump indictment come before others? I'm guessing it would come before others. If only because the case that seems to be the most straightforward, the documents case is a case about him and his behavior, not the behavior of all these people around him coming up with some sort of huge plan, the moving parts of which he may or may not have known or directed. It's literally him saying, I don't want to give this stuff up. I'm going to lie about it. Make sure I don't have to
0: and smith has developed great evidence to exactly that so i too agree it kind of burns me a little cuz i wonder where it leaves mark meadows who will probably be taking the 5th but yeah it seems to me and it has seemed this for a while that it's both sensible and from the little bit of tea leaf reading we can do predictable it's a much simpler case stronger precedent etc Looks like we are out of time for this DOJ report card. It's been a rich dive into often uncharted territory. Thank you very much to Katie, Andrew and Paul. And thank you very much listeners for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we are posting daily video content breaking down the biggest legal developments in the news. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. This week, marking Earth Day, we posted a conversation with environmental lawyer Maya Von Rossum about her Green Amendment movement. Talking Feds is a completely independent production, unlike, for example, such behemoths as Prosecuting Donald Trump with Andrew Weissman and Mary McCord. So, if you like the work we do and the spirit moves you to support the show, joining our Patreon is the best way to do it. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Olivia Henriksen, sound engineering by Matt McCardle. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Rhea Cohen-Gilbert, Emma Maynard, and Kalena Tano. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Litman. Talk to you later.